So how are you? Bill Manteras, how's oh, everything? Had uh, two long days of driving to get down here, uh, but I avoided the rain and was able to get all my furniture down here in, in one piece, hopefully. Uh, so things are good. All right. I just want to introduce you um, to the audience. Bill Manteras, it's so interesting when I started this podcast, I had no idea where these stories were going to come from these stories of grit, grace, and gratitude. And just a few weeks ago, I was at a high school reunion and I began to talk to one of my fellow classmates from many, many years ago. And his story was so compelling, um, rich, textured um, lessons in it. I could have spoken to him all night. And uh, it occurred to me that he is the perfect um, candidate for an interview on a life well lived. And um, so I'm going to let Bill tell most of his story because he sent me pictures. He's he's told me so much about his life and it is so worthy of sharing. So. Bill just spent the last two days driving down to Florida um, to refurnish, I believe, your house in Fort Myers that got kind of wiped out, right? Yeah. Tell me yeah. about that. Tell me about your... Yeah, Hurricane Ian uh, struck here, what was it, last year, I guess? And uh, yeah, we had four and a half feet of water here in our place and destroyed everything. Uh, so we were lucky enough to find a contractor, which was very difficult afterwards. As you can imagine, the whole place was wiped out. And my wife's been coordinating, uh, trying to get everything rebuilt. And I've been uh, making furniture back at our place in Pittsburgh. And so I just drove it down uh, to deliver it here. And so now I have to uh, put everything together. So you're a man of many talents. Many um, talents. Uh, uh, very simple talents. Very simple talents. All right. So I'd like to start at um, kind of the beginning of this journey for you where you kind of had maybe we'd call an epiphany about life. And I believe um, went to dental school, right? Talk to me about your education and your practice and and what happened at the age of 50 to kind of change your course of your life? Uh, well, I did go to University of Pittsburgh undergrad and, and then dental school. Uh, I was the first person in my family to ever go to, to college. Uh, my father was an immigrant to this country, uneducated. Um, so I was kind of uh, treading new ground. Um, uh, it was... Uh, kind of pursuing the American dream, I guess. And I led a very conventional life up until uh, my 40s and 50s. Uh, dental school, US uh, Army. I was a, a, a dentist in Germany for two years and then in private practice. But in my early 40s, uh, my life uh, was, I was thrown a, a, quite a, a sharp curveball. Uh, my brother committed suicide. My parents then died very shortly afterwards. So I lost the three of the main figures in my life all of a sudden. And uh, that was the, the impetus, I think, to 
force me to think about my life in a quite different way. And I shortly after that sold my dental practice, which was really unheard of after all those years of preparation and, and loans and, and so and education and, and so forth. Uh, I just suddenly sold it at the, at the age of 50 and began a whole new life. Uh, I went back to graduate school, got a couple of degrees, uh, uh, a master's of arts and liberal studies, and then a, a master's in policy studies. And that sent me around the world. Um, first doing volunteer dentistry, uh, but mostly uh, pursuing human rights and uh, peace activism causes around the world. And so I began to see a whole different world than I had been exposed to before. And uh, it radically changed my life. What was your uh, first assignment? Or where did you go first? You remember? Well, <laughs> in, in the year 2000, I went to Cuba, believe it or not. Uh, I was just very interested in uh, what was happening there. Uh, and, and I had met some people in Pittsburgh who were connected with a, a project called Sister Cities. Uh, there was, uh, Pittsburgh was the sister city to a, a, a city in, in, in Cuba. And so uh, this was sort of the beginning of my political awakening, political activism. I, I, I did not grow up in a political family. I, I was not politically interested myself at all growing up, even though you and I grew up in the, in the Vietnam era when there was a lot of activism and uh, turmoil in the colleges. But I was just focused on getting my education, pursuing my career. I, I just was not part of that growing up. So this was the, my first look outside, so to speak, to try to understand what was happening in the world. And that was uh, quite a shocking experience. Uh, in uh, Vladimir Lenin uh, Stadium in, in Havana, listening to Fidel Castro give a five hour speech. <laughs> Uh, and it was a conference called the World Solidarity and Friendship Conference. And listening to speakers from the third world, I got a quite different view than I had ever heard before uh, back home in, in the US. Uh, I specifically remember this one speaker from Angola saying, you know, all the colonizers came to our country and they took our land, they took our wealth, they took our women. You, people from Cuba came and you helped us and the only thing you took back were you're wounded and you're dead. And that was a shock to me. I had never heard mm -hmm. this view before. And right. it was probably the start of this quest to try to get a better understanding of how the world works and what my place in it was any time you were fearful for your own life in, in, in your journeys? I mean, you, so you started in Cuba and I know you traveled everywhere. Um, and, A lot of people have sense. asked me that question and it's kind of interesting. Um, there, I have two answers for that. 
Number one is generally the Americans are not targeted in, in the, the countries that I travel to, even though there's a lot of violence. Mm. Guatemala, for instance, one of the most violent countries in the world. Uh, generally, they are not the targets. But the second thing is, once you leave your comfort zone and you begin to see the violence and the oppression of some of these people in these distant lands, it's hard to think about your own safety in the same way. You see what people live with day in and day out and the violence that they're subjected to. And it can just give you a different frame of reference to, to thinking about your yeah. own selfish well-being. Hmm. You, I would imagine, Bill, that you have seen the best of people and the worst of people. I, I would imagine in, in these experiences in your journey, could you talk a little bit about the worst? And then, you know, I'm going to ask you the flip side, the best. So well, what was, you started. Awful, to... <laughs> there's an awful lot I can tell you about the worst that I've seen. Okay, my give first, me a couple. Yeah. My first uh, travels were in Central America and uh, learned about the, the the Central American Wars of the 80s, which how many people in America know anything about that? Uh, 70,000 people killed in Nicaragua, 70,000 people killed in El Salvador, 200,000 people killed in Guatemala, 40,000 people disappeared, which is the worst type of, of torture to the people. They don't know whatever happened to their relatives and their friends, many of them, pushed out of airplanes and helicopters into the Pacific Ocean and into the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, trying to understand what was behind those wars and what the U.S. was doing uh, at that time and their involvement in these wars was, was just a, a whole brand new world to try to explore. And then Vietnam, maybe 4 million people killed in the, in the wars in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War. Uh, I lived with those people in Vietnam and then Cambodia and seeing the Cambodian genocide, uh, the Khmer Rouge, if you remember, Pol Pot. Yeah. I mean, how many young people today even know about those things? Uh, I became deeply involved there with a, a group called the World Association, World Aid to Cambodia, WAC. And I came very close to building a school there because I, I became involved with this group that was providing education for young people, particularly young girls in, in Cambodia to provide a way out of the, their very common route being sold into prostitution and sex slavery. Um, I, for $12,000, I could have built a school there. And I came very close to doing that until I learned that the woman running this organization had been telling lies about her own background. She um, claimed she was a, a, 
sold off into prostitution as a young girl and, mm -hmm. and then, you know, eventually started these schools and it turned out that was a lie. Uh, so I, I did drop out of that project, but I saw these young people, these young women, and I saw the Westerners that come there as sex tourists and they rent or buy these young girls for a period of time. And that coupled with the, uh, the genocide museum and the killing fields that I saw there. Right, in Cambodia. And the most stark memory is, is the killing tree where they killed the babies. Um, I think I saw the very worst. Tell me about the, or retell the story uh, about the coffee bean pickers that you were trying to organize. I think that was, that's an interesting story too. Yeah, this was one of my early trips to, to Guatemala. And I was shocked to see that the, the people in these remote villages were so apparently helpless. I, I didn't understand why they didn't get together and coordinate their efforts. Um, I began to, to propose that some of these farmers should, should join together in a cooperative and they could uh, collect their, their products, which are the coffee beans, which are, uh, which are very labor intensive. The best coffee is grown up in the highlands and so they have to climb these mountains. I mean, these very treacherous, steep cliffs and, and uh, pick these coffee beans they also have to be in shade so they have to plant banana plants next to them to provide shade so it's a tremendous amount of labor but when they sell their coffee beans they get just pennies uh, you know when you're when you buy a, a cup of coffee at starbucks for three or four dollars that that farmer who did all the hard labor is getting just a couple of pennies of that so I began to talk about maybe the, the villages joining together in a cooperative and not only uh, having more leverage selling to the middleman, but maybe even them adding value to their product by processing the coffee beans. They could even roast them themselves. And when I was bringing this up, the Kathy Meyer, the nun that, that was working with, with me in that group, grabbed me by the shoulder, pulled me aside, which shocked me. And she said, you stop that right now. Because when people begin to talk about things like that, people begin to disappear. And I began to learn the, the oppression and the uh, history of, of how, how these indigenous people have lived and, and why they live the way they do today and why they're so hesitant to raise their heads up and to speak up. When they challenge the entrenched interests and particularly the financial interests, mm -hmm. they're massacred even to this day. They're death squads, they're paramilitaries. And I came to know uh, some of these villagers much more intimately later on when, when we actually built a, a clinic in uh, Aguacate, Guatemala. So I spent a lot of time there. And we ended up building a medical dental clinic and I heard their stories and I heard about the massacres and that's what they've experienced for 400 years, 500 years. Uh, it was uh, uh, 
quite a different view than I uh, had yeah. previously. And the other thing I might mention too in Guatemala, that that's the one country that has a large indigenous population. Two thirds of the population is, is indigenous. In all the other countries, including the US, the indigenous have been wiped out. They've been eliminated. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but in Guatemala, they were used for labor. Mm. And they've been slowly <clears throat> moved off the most fertile lands. <clears throat> they've been chased out. They've moved higher and higher up the mountains into the uh, more marginal lands. And 50% of their children died before the age of five. And most of them are from conditions that could be, could be handled very easily. Often it's just dehydration because they don't have access to clean water. Right. The kids develop a severe diarrhea and, and they die of dehydration. We had one baby actually seized in our, in our, uh, operate, in our waiting room from dehydration. <clears throat> and thankfully our, our medical people were able to save him. Um, but that's what they lived with. Um, I remember one, one woman in particular told me she has 11 children. And she spoke present tense, I have 11 children. But six of them were dead. They had died. No. She still talked about them as they were here, as, as her children. And that's what they lived with. This reminds me of the song, Jackson Brown, uh, Doctor My Eyes. So mm -hmm. here's, here's you out in the world seeing these horrific things. I mean, I can't uh, sometimes bear the news about what's going on in the world, and you were witnessing them with your own eyes. So why'd you keep going back? Why did I? It yeah. was compelling. It was... It was such a strong draw <laughs> it wasn't even voluntarily voluntary it was just mandatory that i had to go back i began to see these people <clears throat> and it changed my life it changed my priorities it changed my ideas of my own life uh, i think way? i mentioned to you <clears throat> the difficulty was not there in those countries the difficulty was in coming back and then seeing my own country in a whole different light, the problems that we have, the complaints that we have, the, the luxury, the excess, the, the hatred, the fear. Uh, this, this became uh, the, the, the difficult adjustment or readjustment coming back home. And in many ways, it, it has uh, made me sort of a pariah in my, in my own land. You know, I, I now see my life, my country, and my views of the world much differently than, than I had before and much differently than, than the people around me. And so in many ways, I have uh, become uh, somewhat separated from what we consider mainstream society here. And for 17 years, you were out and then back home again, and then go out and back home again. And finally, yeah. COVID brought you home, right? Yeah, COVID ended that. Um, we could not 
no longer go to that our village in Aguacate, where, where I had been doing my main work with, uh, of recent years. <coughs> like I said, we, we got to build a, a medical dental clinic there. And most importantly, uh, a young girl named Juana was um, acting as my dental assistant while I was doing dental surgery there. She was very interested in, in what I was doing and what the medical people were doing. And uh, she had a sixth grade education and uh, we helped her get a, a high school equivalency and ultimately into, the, into medical school. And she might be one of the first indigenous women in the country to actually graduate from medical school, which she will graduate here in about a year. And she will become the village doctor and the administrator in the clinic. And so it will be a, a self-sustaining operation there that'll, that'll keep on long after we're gone. Congratulations on that, to touch someone that deeply, you know, to change the life, yeah. change the life of the village, you know? But when, when COVID hit, it was a, a very uh, um, strong risk to that village that if we came down there and brought COVID, it could wipe out, you know, a lot of their population. Right. So we had to we had to stop altogether for a, a long period of time. Uh, and this particular village is actually pretty isolated. Uh, it's up in the mountains, and uh, they have very little contact with the government or with the rest of um, mm. Guatemalan society. So they were pretty safe. Um, from the COVID and pretty safe physically too from the violence in the rest of the country. Right, right. Um, so yeah, we did not dare uh, go in at, during COVID at all. Good. So and now since then, I have also give, gave, given up my license and my and my dental insurance. So uh, I'm forced. I forced myself to retire. Yeah. I could still go there and do dentistry. There's no government supervision at all. Um, Actually, I had uh, a, a villager helping me do dental extractions while I was there. Oh, my. Uh, but um, but <clears throat> I can't go to other countries like Vietnam and Bhutan, where I had gone before, because they require your credentials. Uh, so are you, are you kind of sort of home to stay? Or do you think there's still something that's pulling you out there? That's a good question. <laughs> I still feel there's some unfinished work out there for me. Uh, I'm not sure what yet, uh, but uh, occasionally I do get this very strong itch to, to do something. I really wanted to establish a, a dental prevention program in the country of Bhutan. It was, it's a relatively small country about the size of West Virginia. <clears throat> it's very mountainous, of course. It's in the Himalayas. And so travel from one section to another is very difficult. But I had the cooperation of the health ministry there and was very close to trying to set up a, a countrywide prevention program. And, and that to me would have been the most important thing. You know, I can go there and do hundreds of extractions of infected teeth, but that doesn't change the public health. Right. They, major changes can, can be made through these prevention and education programs. And who knows, maybe there's still a, a slight chance of, of that happening. I told you Bhutan is on my bucket list. 
I was uh, that you got to go. That's that's uh, on my top five to get to Bhutan. I know I'm going to well, make sure make sure you climb up to Tiger's Nest if you do go. Tiger's there. Nest, yeah, I've seen pictures. Yeah, yeah, very ambitious. Um, I asked you something very controversial, and because you um, were in Central America and, and and seen so much, you know, we have this immigration issue in America right now that it just seems to be dividing this country and. Um, what are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on just your thoughts on that? You know, well, first ask yourself why are they coming here? I, I, yeah, and there are push and pull factors, right? The, the the push factors are the violence and the poverty in their own countries. Uh, I saw what the people live with and and uh, why they need to escape. Uh, El Salvador, for instance, uh, probably not too many Americans follow the, the politics there now, but they have just, they have a young president and he's instituted this very extreme uh, crackdown on the gangs. Mm. And there, there's many, you know, co uh, controversial opinions or conflicting opinions uh, on that, whether that is violating human rights, but but the violence was so extreme that, that most of the young people were forced to make a choice, either join the drug gangs or be subject to killing or rape or flee the country. I mean, that's how, that's how drastic it got. I saw, even in Ecuador, when I worked there, entire villages collecting their what few resources they have, what, what little money, to send one young person to the United States. And they would come to the United States by whatever means that they could, uh, often by uh, hiring what they call coyotes. These are mm -hmm. the people that get them across mm -hmm. the border. Right. And many of them were unscrupulous, many of them stole their money, uh, rape the women that were trying to, to cross and, and abandon them sometimes partway. And then oftentimes when they did cross, they were caught by the border patrol right. and sent back. And now they owed all that money back to the, their, their own villagers. And so now they had to doubly increase their efforts to get across to, to pay back their, their debts. So <clears throat> there are very strong push factors. And you can ask yourself, well, why are the conditions so bad in these countries? Why is there so much violence? Why is there so much poverty? And that is the, the big question. And that requires years and years of research to try to understand the history and the conditions and all of the government policies not just of their own domestic policies, policies, but of the international situation right. that have led, led to that. So those are the push factors. People don't normally want to leave their own homes. Yeah. They don't want to give up their families. They don't want to give up their lives unless there are very compelling reasons to do so. And, and, and their reasons are, are very compelling. And then there's the pull factors, the pull factors of the United States, a place where they can come in and make money 
and send back home and reparate, uh, uh, not reparations, I forget the word right offhand, but they can uh, feed their family. They mm -hmm. can, they can uh, support their own villages. Uh, even though once they cross the United States, they're, they're uh, so-called illegal aliens, if, right. if you can call people illegal. <laughs> uh, and they're taken advantage of, they're exploited. Even young kids working in the meatpacking, dangerous industries. Uh, but they're willing to do that to make enough money to send back home to support their families and ultimately with the thought of moving back home mm -hmm. uh, when when things are better so, so in I, ideal, yeah in an ideal political world how how should we view this as americans or what obligation do you think our government has in kind of helping rectify the situation in Central America, so they're not compelled to come here. Do you do you have any any thoughts on that? I mean, it's too complex. Obviously, if it were simple, it'd be solved. Um, but any thoughts on how this nation can better serve humanity and 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 those that are running away from poverty, violence. Well, the long-term solution would rest in change, helping to change the conditions in their home countries, of course. And, uh, you know, the main violence is centered in the countries of Honduras, Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Guatemala, in those four Central American countries. And that's where most of the migrants come from. We get a lot from Mexico as well, but <clears throat> Mexico, by the way, is in the midst of drug wars that have killed hundreds of thousands of people mm. over the past decades. Uh, their drug wars became what they call ultra-violent when uh, men that were trained in the special forces then flipped and went to the sides of the, of the drug dealing. Uh, special forces are like our Green Berets, for instance, you know, that are, that are trained in, in the ultimate killing violence techniques. And uh, when they saw all the money in the drug trades, uh, they flipped and both in Guatemala and in Mexico, then they became the ultra-violent um, drug lords in competition with the other mm -hmm. uh, drug runners. So, what do we do? Well, there's a long history of U.S. involvement in Central America. Oh, yeah. Uh, you have to go back to 1823 in the Monroe Doctrine when the United States declared the Western Hemisphere off limits to the rest of the world. This was our sphere of influence, the whole Western Hemisphere. And we have invaded the Central American countries multiple times throughout history, probably something that, that Americans don't know about, but uh, Nicaragua, for instance, uh, even in the Caribbean, uh, the Dominican Republic, even as late as the Johnson administration, uh, multiple invasions by the US to establish 
certain conditions there that were favorable to our, our business enterprises. Mm -hmm. Guatemala, the United Fruit Company, uh, was instrumental in overthrowing, instrumental in affecting the, the U.S., influencing U.S. policy in overthrowing the Guatemalan government in 1954. And that led to a 36-year, what they call civil war. Civil war was really a massacre. It was 95% of the casualties were on one side. It was the indigenous and the peasants. Um, these conditions didn't just happen. They were the result of government policy, not just policies of the, of the uh, yeah. domestic governments there, but also of the international scene, including the United States. We don't know about those things. We're not taught that. In oh, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it's a lifelong learning experience to, to try to learn what led to these conditions. Uh, I mentioned Guatemala, you know, in 1953, the, the, this CIA, along with uh, uh, military, the Great, Great Britain military intelligence, MI6, it's called, overthrew the government of Iran. Yes. Democratically elected government, the Mossadegh. Yeah. Americans don't know about that, but like, you can bet the Iranians certainly know about, know about it. it. Yeah. And that led to, you know, the uh, oppressive government of the Shah. Yeah. Well, one year after that, they overthrew the government of, of Guatemala. That was Jacobo uh, Arbenz. And he was also a, a democratically elected uh, president who began land redistribution to the poor. And the United Fruit Company was very threatened by that. And they had influence in Washington. And... Uh, led to the overthrow of that government. And that led to years and years and years of, of violence and killing. And by the way, I was in uh, this, the city, the town of uh, Esquipulas, where the final peace accords were signed in 1996 to end that war. Um, that, was, that was the first place that I actually did dentistry abroad. So yeah, many, 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 many factors. And we are heavily involved in it, uh, our history. Um, yeah. The long-term solution is to, is to begin to uh, institute uh, a more democratic uh, procedures in these host countries and to uh, eliminate these push factors that force these people off right. their farms yeah, and uh, out of their own homelands. Yeah, I, I don't know if as a nation we have the will to do that or the interest to do it. We see well, most of our economic interests have, have led in the opposite direction. In, in Nicaragua, for instance, we had uh, garment manufacturers, Van Heusen shirts, if you remember that brand, yes. uh, tire companies uh, making tires. And we were exploiting the cheap labor there under the uh, dictatorship of the Somoza family. They had a, a long-term uh, family dictatorship there. And, and so when, when they were finally overthrown by the uh, Sandinistas, the U.S. was not on the side of the 
of the revolution. They were on this counter-revolutionary side because, uh, you know, our our financial business interests were yeah. were were with with that Sandinista dictatorship, and that led to great violence there for many years. And I have many stories there as well. Oh, well, I'm sure we could talk for hours on on your stories. Um, some some might ask that as an ex-soldier, why were you compelled to travel internationally? Why not stay here in the States? And, you know, there's so much poverty in, in, in our own country, and there's so many underserved people and so many people in need of dentistry. I mean, what, 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 what pulled you to see the world rather than kind of staying in the States and a couple of things there. First of all, I have to correct you. I wasn't a soldier. I was in the military as a, as a dentist, but okay. okay. All right. not, not, not uh, I couldn't okay. shoot. In the military. Out. Okay. Yeah. But uh, I, I was involved in the U.S. I, I did uh, help uh, set up the uh, Catholic Charities Dental Clinic in Pittsburgh. And there we served the, the underserved population. The, the very poorest people were uh, able to receive some type of medical dental care through their welfare programs. And then the wealthier people, the working people had dental insurance through the, their, their jobs. And so there was a, a, a level of uh, low income people that were not being served at all. And I did uh, set up the, the dental clinic in Pittsburgh with Catholic Charities and worked there for a couple of years. But uh, no doubt my interests were much more uh, focused overseas. Right. I, I, I guess in a way I was seeing life on the big screen. Mm. You know, I, I've never been so involved in local politics or state politics, but it was on the big screen, seeing the international scene <clears throat> that really attracted me and Help me understand the big picture, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I was just drawn to these countries where these people were living in such stark poverty that it was just so, and, and, and political oppression at the same time, that it was just so much more compelling. Now, I, actually, funny that you asked that question. I, I've had a lot of resentment about not working here. At, you know, yeah, I would, I would think people right next to me. And uh, my answer to that is we, we live in a, in a democracy and we're the wealthiest country on earth. Mm -hmm. We have the opportunity to treat our, our own people and to uh, give them a decent life here. It's up to us. We have that choice. We have that free choice. In the countries that I visit, they don't have that free choice. There are death squads, there are uh, paramilitaries, and there are massacres. So I don't feel as compelled here, truthfully, as I do abroad. You you mentioned some of the horrific things um, that you saw. What are some of the best of humanity? 
Because we have to bookend this with... Uh, we do. We do. It's not all dismal. No, it's not. In fact, I've seen the most beautiful people in the world and the most beautiful things that they do. And I can remember, Jenny, the moment it hit me. <clears throat> I was on a bus through Central America and we had just left this village where the women had prepared us a meal. These are people that don't have enough to eat themselves, but for us traveling through on this bus and, and delivering aid to them, they gave up their own food for us. Oh, and, and I began to hear the stories of, of these people and particularly it was the women that struck me. These were the caregivers to the victims of the wars. You know, my heroes before that were athletes. I grew up in the era of Roberto Clemente playing for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And my ultimate goal in life would have been to be an outfielder for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, athletes and war heroes, you know, the John Wayne type of war hero that I saw in the movies. But when I began to see these people, my view of heroic people changed dramatically. It's what these women were doing. They were caring for the victims of my heroes, my war heroes, and they put their lives at risk. Many of these women were also tortured and killed, and particularly in Guatemala. And I saw these, these peasant people living in a, in a collective society, you know, we, we are in a, a, what's so-called advanced capitalistic society here in the U.S., and it's, and it's very individualistic. But many of the traditional societies are, are collective. They still operate in a collective identity. Mm -hmm. You know, if you ask a person, you know, what, what their name is, they, they tell you and they say son of so-and-so, mm -hmm. brother and sister of so-and-so, nephew of so-and-so. They, you know, they tell you about their whole entire clan and their whole entire village. They're still connected in, in a sense of community. When we built the clinic in Aguacate, Guatemala, the whole village showed up unasked. Mm. And these are men that every day tread up into the mountains to plant their corn and their beans and coffee. Um, but they gave that up to just show up. The women showed up with the food and they climbed up on the roofs and started tearing down this old building to, to build this new clinic. I don't even know how they even knew about it, but um, word gets around. And these are people that care for each other and take care of each other and uh, are very heroic in, in their sacrifices. And, and that, that is what I saw that, that I had never experienced here. The best, the best. So how are you different today than you were 30 years ago, 40 years ago? Who are you today because of your experiences of seeing the best and the worst? Who are you? Well, certainly different priorities. Um, I, I don't 
pursue the, the types of goals and priorities that I had uh, earlier on. I, I kind of laugh at the, at the things that, that drew me uh, you know, years ago. Uh, they're not important at all to me now. Um, but more importantly, I think a certain type of awareness. Uh, and, and when I look back at my earlier life, I felt like I was sleepwalking through life. You know, I had mm -hmm. this certain path that I was on and was completely oblivious to uh, the world around me and actually to, to even knowing myself, you know, knowing what was, what was going on inside of myself. And so I guess the short answer would be a certain awareness, uh, an awakening, I mm -hmm. think they call it, mm -hmm. of uh, seeing suddenly, seeing the whole world in a different light and seeing your own life in a, in a, in a very different light. This reminds me, I was working with some students last night. We were reading The Alchemist by Calejo when he talks about uh, a personal legend that all of us are born with a, a personal legend. It seems like uh, seeing the world helping like you did for 17 years was kind of a personal legend. Did your religion, did your faith kind of guide that or your character, your moral center, your moral compass? What, what gave you the strength? I was raised in a, in a traditional religious Orthodox family, Greek Orthodox. And uh, I remember the moment when I first began to question that. Again, it was a, an aha moment. I was driving to work. And this was after the deaths in my family. And I remember when it hit me, wait a minute, are you accepting all these things you were taught as a kid? And I started to begin to question things. But then when I uh, began to travel abroad, I saw the religions and the faith of, of people in all these different various countries. And I began to learn there, there are many paths up the mountain. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, our traditional view of religion is, well, all religions in the world are fake and they're wrong, except one, mine. mine. <laughs> uh, so when you do travel the world and you see all these different belief systems, you begin to realize there are many paths up the mountain. There, there are many beliefs. And uh, let's see, what did Gandhi say? When, when your religion leads you to hatred and the killing, then it's time to change your religion. Religion, yeah. Something to that effect. And, and so I became more um, guided by the, those hum, human principles than I was by religious dogma. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're just seeing the, the, the absolute cruelty done in the name of religion or, or by religious people with with um, some type of righteousness, you know, in their heart, uh, just um, didn't make sense to me anymore. 
and so, yeah, I guess after that, I, I began to be guided more by these moral principles and human, human principles of humanity than, than uh, the dogma that I was taught or that I saw motivating people to commit violence around the world. Your, your story is so unique in that very few Americans have your perspective. Correct. One, one, that you had the courage to leave a, a, a lucrative, blossoming career and set out on this journey to be in the world, to really be in the world. And then being in the world to see the real world, what was really happening in the world. Very few Americans have your perspective. And I, you know I'm going to have to ask this question because this is a question that keeps me up at night. What do you think? We're living in a world that just is torn apart now with hatred, wars. Um, I don't know. In, in, in our lifetime, I don't think I've ever felt um, the hatred, the, um, the negative uh, energy. I mean, when I hear on the news that, you know, a six-year-old boy was stabbed 20 sometimes because he was Muslim, you know, here in America, just, you know, in Israel and Gaza and Ukraine and Russia, you know, I'm, I'm left with some kind of feeling of like hopelessness. Like where is peace? Where is, where is the goodness from your perspective, from your years, from your wisdom? Thoughts? You raised a lot of, uh, a lot of points there. First of all, giving up my, my lucrative, uh, position in life was not that difficult. I remember this quote from a book that I read. Uh, this, this author said, every day I got up, I got dressed, I put on my tie and coat, I picked up my briefcase, I went to work and I died a little bit more. Mm. And that was me. I was suffocating in, in uh, the job that I was doing. It was probably a, as good as I could have made it in, in, in the profession. I, I had a, a rather low, low stress practice that was, you know, somewhat, I had good employees, I, I, a lot of patients, but I was dying a, a little bit more every day. A lot so, of Americans are dying in their, in their careers too, yet don't have the courage to step it was, on. It was not answering my, my yeah. needs in my life. Uh, so yeah, I did step out of it. It was shocking to, to people that knew me. It was shocking even to myself that it happened that quickly. Once I began to look for an associate for my practice, suddenly I found a buyer and suddenly I sold it. And uh, here I was at 50 <clears throat> and out of, out of dentistry. And I, by the way, I thought I'd never do dentistry again in my life. I, I was so burned out. I didn't even want to see it in dental office. But uh, once I started doing this work abroad, it, it re-energized me. And I was uh, very, very enthusiastic about uh, doing what I could abroad. And uh, the other th thought that it brought up, 
well, I won't even bring that up. That, that, that's another story. Um, so it did give me a, a view of the world. I, I saw the best and the worst. And so your question is a question that I've, I've often asked people as well. Um, do you think this is business as usual, the, the usual ups and downs of no. history? Or do you think this is a period of reckoning? True. Pardon? Reckoning? Reckoning. I just, yeah. you know, what's, well, what's the doomsday clock said? We're down to seconds or something, right? Seconds. Yeah, that's the Union of Concerned Scientists in Times Square. They have a doomsday clock. It used to be hours and minutes to midnight, and now it's down to seconds. And that's due to the threat of nuclear war the threat of environmental destruction and climate change. And, and you know what the third factor is? It's the loss of uh, pub, uh, discussion in the public forum. There's oh. no longer an opportunity for sides to discuss and to meet and to debate. Right. Uh, that's gone. We're, we're so polarized. Uh, if I'm, you know, to be honest with you, Jenny, I... I I think we're headed for some major disturbances. I think our children, our grandchildren will see major dislocations in their life. Uh, we're still rushing to the precipice in terms of environmental destruction. Uh, the changes that we're making are, are mostly very menial, mm -hmm. uh, not, not enough to substantially uh, reduce things. Uh, threat of nuclear war, the loss of democracy in our country, the threat right. of authoritarianism right here. Right. Um, those are all real threats. Uh, I don't see a strong movement to correct any, any of those major threats. So my own feeling, yeah, we're, we're headed for probably some pretty significant disruptions but it you also mentioned about being hopeless and and that ensures the right. uh, the negative consequences so the only thing we we have only one choice and that is to try to fight and try to um, follow some form of activism to affect the, the change on these things otherwise we we do just ensure the, the negative consequences. Yeah, I I agree with you. I I think we're headed for some serious reckoning in this world. I don't know what that looks like, but I do have hope that the human voices will rise, the people, the women of the world that you met, the people of heart and courage like you will find a greater voice after whatever I think is in, in front of us. It, it's, but I think, I think there will be peace at some point at the end of that. But I think we have to go through a winter, a very long, painful winter to come out into the spring again. Well, you know, your your podcast is has the theme of uh, grit, grace, and gratitude, and, and it 
I think it reflects the, the story that we actually need some type of adversity in our life to develop proper compassion, empathy, mm-hmm. wisdom, happiness. You know, there, there are studies today that show that the, the right type of adversity at the right age and of the right amount are all necessary for mm-hmm. developing mm-hmm. a certain type of wisdom. And maybe on the grand scale, we as humanity uh, maybe need the same type of adversity to actually begin to face up to these great challenges that are ahead of us. You know, in many ways, we still haven't progressed much from the chimpanzees and, and for that matter, the ants and the bees that, that still go to war uh, uh, for their own uh, property and, and their own resources and, right. and so forth and their own, and their own in-group versus out-group. In many ways, we haven't evolved at all from those beasts. But we do have the cognitive capacity to, to do that. We, we know, we can understand, we can process. And there are examples around the world. The Nordic Zone of Peace uh, was one of the places that I, that I studied. Uh, the home of the Vikings, the most violent people on earth maybe at, at one time. They signed the Nordic Zone of Peace and they have not had wars or violence since I think in the 1820s. And, and that's not only wars internationally, but also within their societies, they've become peaceful as well. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're one of the most equal societies <laughs> in the world in, throughout Scandinavia. And also they always rank at the, at the very top in terms of happiness. Happiness, yeah. 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 Uh, there, there's a lesson there for us. Maybe yeah. we have to be brought to it by some shock, uh, some disruption, some danger. I don't know. Um, but there's hope. It's possible. There always has to be hope. There has to be hope. And on that, I think our time is up. Bill Mantis, uh, I could talk to you all day. Um, thank you. Thank you kindly for sharing your story, for enlightening people that are listening. Um, your journey has been a courageous one. And um, you know what I think? I think you should write a book. And I have a ghostwriter lined up for you. Uh, your stories need to be out there uh, because we can learn from you. Right. And I've got a, go ahead. I've got a lot of experiences I could throw out there. If somebody could put them together in a, in a coherent narrative, yeah. All right. I'm, I'm going to mention a name, Michael Watterson. Michael Watterson said he'd think about it. So uh, oh. Poet Laureate of California um, might be interested in jumping in because your stories are really worth it. So thank you, Bill, for being a guest. Um, I appreciate it. And uh, go furnish that house, you know, and safe travels back to Pittsburgh. All right. Thank you. Thanks, sir. I absolutely will. All right. Take care. Be well. Bye. Bye. Bye.